Welcome to Business Line's State of the Economy podcast, where you will find insight, analysis, and the story behind the numbers. Hello, all. Welcome to this episode of Business Line's State of the Economy podcast. We are fresh out of the G20 summit. Many in India watched in awe as G20 leaders gathered in Delhi last week managed to reach a consensus on a joint communique. This happened after Indian negotiators convinced the Western nations and the Russia-China duo on a compromised language on the Ukraine conflict. The success of the joint communique was hailed by many as India's diplomatic win. It was seen as the West's acceptance of the fact that issues of importance to the Global South could not be overshadowed by the concerns over the war. But could the communique in itself be hailed as a victory for the Global South? Did it have enough provisions in areas such as climate change, climate finance, development finance, debt restructuring, and reforms of multilateral development banks to be of benefit to developing countries? Does it give a clear policy direction for the future to ensure that the concerns on the global south remain center stage? I have with me Dr. Biswajit Thar, Distinguished Professor, Council for Social Development, to analyze the communique for us. Welcome, Dr. Thar. Thank you. Dr. Thar, to begin with, just tell us how significant was the fact that we had a communique, that, you know, a consensus was reached on the language for Ukraine. No, I think this was a real achievement because uh, the way several of the ministerial meetings went, especially the meeting of the finance ministers and uh, central bank governors, which uh, didn't end with a, a kind of a declaration, but just, just ended with a chair statement. There was apprehension that there would not be any declaration at the end of the New Delhi summit. And that would have been a real uh, uh, problem because uh, coming at a time when there are huge global issues that are staring in our face, you know, especially faced by the southern countries, lack of declaration would have meant that, you know, this entire formation was not able to hold together. And again, I would say the added, uh, you know, problem of getting a declaration at the end of the New Delhi uh, summit was that India had brought in onto the table the 55-member African Union. So all this would have actually been uh, sort of uh, sent to the back burner if the declaration had not come. So I see this as a, as a major achievement of Indian diplomacy and uh, the fact that we were able to get the, the two opposing parties together and get a language that uh, eventually clinched in a New Delhi declaration, and that is for the reform. Right. So what you're saying is that the communique was the first step. Like, if we did not have a communique, we wouldn't have any other parts also. But if we, no. you know, really... Let me yeah. clarify, Amity, what I was saying, that, look, if we didn't have a communique, then, mm -hmm. you know, this would have cast, you know, sort of some certain amount of doubts or considerable doubts on the future of the G20 as a grouping going forward, right. that the G20 can't hold together because they can't actually get uh, any any uh, their act together. So from that point of view, from the future of the G20, and again, from the fact that we are uh, you know, at this critical juncture, this was very significant. Right. So now if we try and break up the communique, so how significant was it in terms of, you know, what it did for the global south? So for instance, if we look at debt restructuring, it was one of the, you know, primary areas where, you know, India wanted to focus. But, you know, there doesn't seem to be much on debt restructuring, you know, for vulnerable uh, economies like Sri Lanka is there. Like if you look at the communique, I did not find anything very significant there. 
No, no, that's the dis, uh, uh, disappointing part that having got a declaration, the contents of this declaration doesn't uh, uh, say anything uh, significant for the global south. Again, you know, the global south, this tagline, this sort of term became an important political statement that the Indian presidency has been making, the prime minister had been making right since the beginning. The first statement that he issued on 1st December when India took over the G20 presidency, he mentioned about the concerns of the global south. And this was something, you know, very interesting because we are hearing this from the government after a long time. I think uh, there was, maybe there still is, a confusion in the government as to where we are going to be pitching ourselves. Are we an emerging, emerged economy? Are we part of the global south, the developing world? So this sort of confusion was seemed to have been sort of settled once uh, the prime minister made regular references to the global south. And having said that, you know, I would say that the, this political message has not been translated into real economic gains for the south. You talked about the debt restructuring. Now, the debt restructuring is an extremely important issue, especially after you got on, on board the 55 African Union members. Now, the debt restructuring is being talked about from from point of view of the low-income countries. There are 70 low-income countries, they're beneficiary countries, of which 40 are from are members of the African Union. So, this is something, a delivery on the debt, debt restructuring would have been something huge for the uh, African countries. And this on two counts. One is, of course, the, the debt overhang prevents these countries from investing in development. So, you know, if you're looking at the SDGs and what have you, the larger canvas of development, they're being hamstrung because they don't have uh, finance. And therefore, concessional finance, uh, reaching them concessional finance or finance in general was a very important, uh, for very important task. The second is that... Uh, they need to invest to reach net zero goals. So the investing in adaptation mitigation is something that uh, they need finance. And unless uh, debt uh, burden is lowered, uh, they are not going to be uh, they are not going to be viable, uh, especially when uh, you're looking at the capital markets. Now on these two grounds, you know the the, the G20, you know this framework they adopted three years back, the common framework of uh, for uh, uh, ameliorating the debt, debt burden of the developing countries, low-income countries, I would say, that is really inadequate because primarily, I'm not going to go into the details, primarily it does not cut uh, the, the debt overhang and what to do with the debt overhang that these countries owe to the private creditors and multilateral development banks. Now, these are out. So only official creditors are on board. And the official creditors, even for you know countries, the middle-income countries like Sri Lanka and uh, Pakistan, they are anywhere between 20 and 30 percent. The larger share of debt they owe is to private creditors. So without the private creditors on board, we can't go anywhere, and that has not happened. Now on the question of uh, extending this beneficiaries to the middle-income countries, so that you know, Sri Lanka and Pakistan are also included. The only uh, gain I would say is that Sri Lanka's case has been uh, accepted and, and um, uh, you know, we're working out a debt reduction strategy, not in terms of a haircut to the creditors, but only in terms of rescheduling the debt. So this is only about debt 
repayment, uh, you know, suspension of debt service. That's all that is happening, nothing more than that. So that is very uh, unfortunate that we didn't go any far, any further than that. The second issue was the restructuring of the multilateral development banks. Now, these are two linked issues because if the multilateral development banks are not adequately capitalized, you know, the, the questions about their capital adequacy uh, uh, do not cease and they're, they're actually coming up uh, thick and fast, then the ability of these banks to provide concessional finance is going to be limited. Now, on this issue, again, you know, we haven't actually gone very far. This is because uh, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, Janet Ellen, actually uh, Yellen said that uh, first we need to look at, uh, you know, the reform of these banks and then talk about uh, providing additional finance to them. Now, reform of these banks is, a, again, a, a major political issue because the developing countries and India and China have been making this point uh, for at least a couple of decades now, that uh, the management of the bank and the fund uh, especially should reflect the realities, the economic realities of the present times, which is that the voting share should move away from the US and the other developed countries towards the emerging economies. Now, now that's hanging fire. The only marginal changes that have happened thus far and the G20 has not really taken any step towards uh, reforming uh, these multilateral uh, development banks. But the resolution does talk about, you know, collectively mobilizing more headroom and concessional finance to boost World Bank's capacity to support low and middle income countries, which help need help in addressing global challenges. So you say that you, you think that that does not go too far without these additional things? No, they don't. Because, you know, you're not walking the talk. You know, there is a lot of talk about this happening, you know, providing the additional headroom, you know, like I mentioned that uh, looking at the capital adequacy issues. So all these have been mere talk. And this has been go going on from at least 20, uh, to, to 2016. So, so seven years of talk, uh, but uh, little walk uh, towards uh, addressing this issue. Right, right. So uh, let us uh, just talk a bit about the major announcements that were made at the G20 summit. So one big announcement was on this global biofuel alliance. So basically it was seen as one of the key outcomes of the summit. So how do you see this panning out? And to what extent do you think it can forward the you know, global green agenda and also be beneficial to developing countries? No, this, this is surely a, an important step forward. There's no doubt about it. But I think um, I'm really concerned that, you know, uh, whether the biofuel alliance, the, this kind of uh, shifting of uh, the mix towards biofuels is going to do anything to uh, several countries' food security, for instance. Now, we have a national biofuel strategy which says that the surpluses of the Food Corporation of India can be used for biofuel. Now, this whole surpluses issue is really contentious because uh, many of us feel that, uh, you know, the food stocks lying with the, the FCI are not distributed properly. The public distribution system doesn't work as efficiently as, as uh, they should. And then we see these numbers of India having a very large uh, number of uh, undernourished people. And the FAO has been telling us year after year that um, at least uh, three-fourths of the people in this country do not get, uh, you know, nourished food. So there has to be a very carefully planned strategy uh, because as, uh, you know, if you if you look at uh, fuel prices, uh, you know, moving food 
towards fuel is a very attractive attractive uh, proposition for all concerned you know because uh, you know providing food at low prices is not a very attractive uh, kind of a thing and then you know if suppose governments whoever giving subsidies uh, for food security they feel that uh, you know there is no point uh, giving food subsidy rather you just produce food and move it into the uh, the, the fuel stream that will be uh, pretty uh, problematic so overall it's an important uh, decision no doubt uh, reducing the emission of greenhouse gases there, there are serious underlying concerns that i just spoke about right so the food versus fuel thing has to be handled very carefully at the policy level absolutely that is a very strategic decision that countries you know individual governments will have to take right so uh, the g20 delhi summit uh, declaration also talks about you know phasing out fossil fuel subsidies so how significant is this resolution do you think it is a mere reiteration of past resolutions or could it serve as an essential reminder you know on the task that is ahead of us that you know the world has been talking about for some time yeah i think uh, you know again this is uh, a reminder to all concerned that um, you know fossil fuel subsidies will only encourage uh, more use of uh, these uh, greenhouse gas emissions i don't think it is more than a uh, more than that kind of a reminder because the effective thing has to be done on other fronts so the effective thing has to be like for instance the biofuel alliance will help in reducing the dependence on on fossil fuels then the going into renewable energies especially solar again will do the same thing so i would say that while we keep reiterating this point about fossil fuel subsidies the important uh, aspect is moving away from dependence on fossil fuels into clean energy sources that that will be the the main uh, task before us so do you think there was more scope to have more ambitious resolutions on climate change you know in this uh, communicate surely i think that uh, you know one would think that uh, you know any climate strategy cannot be addressed without effectively addressing the the questions of climate finance and providing access to technologies for uh, for access to green technologies i would say now again you know this declaration like many others others in the past have not been very clear because we are only talking about indirect terms for instance you know like conventional finance for uh, these countries uh, low income countries or providing more uh, you know overall uh, financing for uh, climate change so we are we are still talking about generalities you know so while we are talking about 2030 targets but we are still talking about generalities there isn't much seriousness that we see on the part of those countries who are able to provide finance that is the advanced countries and i think there is a reason for this because most of these countries are investing heavily in their economies you know the us for instance has, has i think in my view has overcommitted in terms of restructuring or or putting in places manufacturing sector so trillions of dollars are going into that so their uh, headroom is is now limited but uh, the other issue on on technology is just a mention of technology and i am happy that technology was also uh, mentioned there the access to technology is a key element green technology is a key element in achieving the climate goals and i don't think we have done uh, you know enough on that 
Right. Dr. Thir, uh, another big announcement at the G20 was on the launch of the historic India-Middle East-Europe Mega Economic Corridor. So uh, we have the EU President Ursula von der Leyen saying that it would make trade between India and EU 40% faster. So uh, how do you see this actually happening? Like it seems that the whole the whole plan seems very ambitious. You know, you have rail links, you have ports. So how do you see this happening and uh, how soon do you think there could be gains that could be reaped out of this? Yeah, this is important, no doubt. But, you know, when I was reading this about this decision, I was concerned about the enormous investment that we had made through our Look East and Actis policy, the connectivity, uh, you know, sort of plans that we had made on, on the eastern flank of our country and connecting better uh, with uh, our eastern neighbors. Now, this has been going on for a very long time, and I think there are real benefits to be had from this because, uh, you know, there are countries with whom we have already clinched free trade agreements. We haven't done uh, enough in terms of getting market access. Connectivity surely is a big issue um, in, in this regard. And uh, I would have, I, I would think that, you know, if we had actually addressed the connectivity issues uh, properly, then there, there were more gains to be had on the eastern flank. So when we have made a commitment on the western flank as well, the connectivity is on the western flank. So my concern is that uh, you're not uh, not going to be able to garner resources to do both the things at the same time. Now, uh, what would be the way forward for the government? How do we actually balance these two, two ap absolutely pressing needs? Uh, you can't give up, uh, in my view, you can't give up uh, you know, decades of investment in, in uh, uh, you know, in terms of policies and others that we have done on the eastern flank, the Luke East and the Act East policy. So this kind of the balancing act, how it is to be done, is going to be a, a major challenge for the government. Right. Finally, you know, would you rate the admission of the African Union as a permanent member of the G20 as, you know, one of the significant achievements during the summit? And do you think that this could change the balance in the bloc in favor of the developing world? No, undoubtedly a very important step. I think, uh, the, you know, this is the first expansion of uh, the G20 after the uh, it, it was upgraded to the summit level. And very important countries have been brought in because they were, they were hugely underrepresented in, in G20. Now, the issue again for me is, is in terms of substance. Because now, uh, with these many countries from the South represented on the uh, G20, one is again tempted to ask the whole same old question, what did they get by sitting on the high table? And, uh, uh, you know, we haven't seen the South getting anything from uh, sitting on the high table. Because in my view, uh, the G20 is basically an extension of the G7. You know, it's actually carried the G7 agenda. And and I have been uh, calling this uh, G20 as uh, uh, you know what has happened to G20 is G G7ization of this of this grouping. Now there, I think if 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 the dynamics have to change, then India will have to play a very important role because India has historically played the role of the leader of the South, and these countries in this in Africa, Latin America have always looked up to India, and some of these countries in Asia as well. I've always looked up to India to provide the political and the intellectual sort of stimulus uh, to think in terms of the, uh, you know, so or, or rather imagine what South can do and what South can actually achieve. 
So I think uh, by bringing uh, these countries onto the table, I think India has also taken on a big responsibility on itself uh, to properly respond or, or to, to properly represent the interest of the South in, in the G20, because only then can the real change take place. Otherwise, this will be another kind of uh, uh, photo op, uh, uh, nothing more than that. Right. Dr. Thar, uh, I thank you really wholeheartedly for patiently answering so many questions and helping us understand the nuances of what actually happened at the G20. Well, as we move towards the virtual G20 summit that the PM has proposed in November and to basically, you know, take a stock of how things are being implemented, we hope to have you again with us to discuss a new communique. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.